Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. <laughs> All right, so there are certain shows. I, I'm sure there are certain shows where the producer of the show thinks, I don't know, is he even paying any attention? Is he even engaging in this? And then there's some shows, like the one we're about to do right now, where the producer's watching the rundown that he or she has developed over time and watched me type thing after thing after thing after thing in this very annoying purple font I have. That's what's going on with today's show about the notion of the sacred, how we explore and express the sacred in our daily lives. Very excited about this show, more excited even than this music would indicate. So get ready before I type something else in purple. Actually, I have to take a moment to compose myself. Um, that's Paul Winter and Paul Winter Consort. Um, I believe that particular recording of that song, that much recorded song, is done in the Cathedral of St. John the Divine, where he does his solstice concerts. I, I listened to it this morning, and I completely lost it. I completely wept. I thought it was going to be okay here, but I, I'm okay. We're going to talk about the sacred, which is something that we think maybe, or maybe I thought going into this when Lily Tyson first proposed this, I thought, well, I know what that means and I know how to talk about it. And then the more I thought about it, the less I was sure. But before I introduce, uh, we have three terrific guests here. Before I introduce the first of them, I'm going to read a little part of a poem by Rilke. The poem is called, Now It Is Time That Gods Came Walking. I'm going to skip down here. to. He says, oh, gods, gods, who used to come so often and are still asleep in the things around us, who serenely rise, and at wells that we can only guess at splash icy water on your necks and faces and lightly add your restedness to what seems already filled filled to bursting, our full lives. And I think there is that kind of sense anyway. Well, I, I, I won't even say another word about it. I'm going to introduce the guest. Uh, so Mary Jane Rubenstein is professor of religion and science at, in society at Wesleyan University. And she is the author of Astrotopia, the Dangerous Religion of the Corporate Space Race, among other books. Uh, we're very excited to have her here. Hi, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much. It's great to be here. 
So maybe just give us, I mean, obviously the word sacred is going to mean different things to different people and different things in different cultures, but give us kind of just a working definition of it so we know what it is we're batting around here. Sure. Working definition of the sacred. Uh, The sacred refers to uh, people or places or things that tend to be set apart from other people or places or things. Um, And insofar as they are set apart, they tend to be surrounded by prohibitions, which is to say things that you can't do to them. Um, And also prescriptions, which is to say things that you have to do with them in relation to them if you're going to interact with them. Yeah, you know, as I was sort of uh, meditating about this all morning and, and reading and thinking, it struck me that we could be pantheistic, so God is everywhere. Or we could be, as you religious uh, religion professors would say, apophatic. God is ineffable. You can only really talk about everything about God that you can't figure out. But many of us, I think, are wired to want or need a set of circumstances that could be identified as sacred in opposition to everything that isn't. I'm not going to say profane. I don't think that's the right word. But it feels to me anyway that in, in identifying the sacred, the objects, you know, God is in this chalice and this mezuzah. God is not in the Vitamix splendor on your counter. Um, that we're sort of wrestling like Jacob with the angel, trying to get God or the divine down to earth in some place where on a reliable basis we can then interact with divinity. But just react to that idea. Sure. Well, I think that if it's the case that, as a number of our traditions teach us, um, divinity is somehow inherent in all things, but also not equivalent to any of those things, um, then it makes sense for different communities to try to map the places in which divinity or the sacred or the source of things or the ancestors um, sort of show up uh, with more intensity than other places. And those are going to vary from community to community, right? For For some communities, a particular tree will be sacred, and for others, a different tree will be sacred or a different mountain or something like that. Right. And sometimes the thing is sacred in its kind of natural resting space and sort of the way it is, it's sacred. And then there are things that we make sacred. We've been through the consecration of a new king of England. And I was noticing that the so-called chrism, which is the sacred oil that is used to anoint kings as well as priests and bishops and everybody else, um, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a particular thing that is acted upon to make it sacred, right? And, and it's made out of things. It's, I, I, I think the base is still olives from the Mount of Olives. Uh, but uh, because of who Charles is, uh, it, does, it didn't have animal products in this. And then, like when his mother was anointed, the chrism had uh, ambergris, which is made from whales uh, in it. You know, so it's – but it's – we can decide something sacred and we can make it more sacred by doing stuff to it. Yes, absolutely. I, I, I don't think anything actually is inherently sacred. Um, beings in the world uh, are. And because collective, communal – social energies get uh, sort of invested in particular things and not other things. Um, Particular things become sacred and other things don't become sacred. So chrism, right, the oil, even if it's oil from olive oil from the Mount of Olives, it's just oil. It's just olive oil until a priest or a bishop says words over it. Um, Communion wine is just wine. I mean, you can buy communion wine at the package store on route whatever. 
um, bring it into a church. It's just why there's nothing special about communion wine until a priest says the words of the institution over it and makes it a sacred thing. Right. So it's it's human rituals that make sacred things and people and places sacred. Right. Don't bring it home expecting it expecting it to transubstantiate. Uh, right. Don't try this no. at home, as they say. No. So, but let's go. Let's stay with this idea of things that are in their natural state sacred, and then things where sacredness is kind of created. The um, uh, one of the uh, contrasts you use is, and I know nothing about this Ularu, which is otherwise known as Ayers Rock uh, in mm-hmm. Australia. Tell us about that. Sure. It's um it's an amazing structure. So it's Uluru or Ayers Rock um, out in the outback. Um, it is sacred to the Anangu people um, of Australia. And it's it, I mean, you've probably seen photos of it. You'll see, you know, the 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 land is just sort of orangey red. And then suddenly there's just this gargantuan monolith um, rising from what seems to be sort of nothing around it. Um, and according to the Anangu people, each part of this rock was formed by different ancestral beings as they sort of slid and made their way through the landscape um, at the time of creation or, or dream time. Um, so snakes and wallabies and sand pythons all kind of constitute this rock, um, which for the Anangu is a is a living, breathing being. It is it is the resting place of the ancestors. It that's that's what it is. Um, it is also a tourist attraction for non-indigenous people who go and see how incredible it is and want for one reason or another to climb it or to etch their names into it or something like that. Um, and so there we see a, you know, a conflict of um, between a community that views a natural formation as sacred um, and a community that maybe doesn't see it as sacred. Yeah. And, that, and that's a tension in all kinds of places like that. Um, well, I, I mean, maybe we can circle back to that uh, in a second. But OK, you contrast to that, too. And it, it was funny just to see this in the notes, the conversation that you had with Lily. I just perked right up because if somebody had asked me, well, bring me someplace sacred. I don't know that I would know how how exactly to do that, but I, I would say numinous instead of sacred. But the place I would bring you, whatever we were calling it, is the Cathedral of St. John the Divine uh, in New York up in Morningside Heights where I had experiences that were ineffable and, and but, you know, important to me. But that's a made space. So talk a little bit more about it. Right. It's a made space. I mean, it's a it's a as the psalmist would say, it's a fearfully and wonderfully made space. It's um, <laughs> perennially unfinished. It's absolutely stunning. It's the world's largest neo-Gothic cathedral. Um, and it's right there on Amsterdam Avenue and 112th Street. Um, and they say that at its apex, at the the, the height of the cathedral, right at the crossing, um, if you wanted to, um, if you could figure out how to do it, you could fit the Statue of Liberty inside there. I mean, it's just absolutely gargantuan. It fits thousands of people. Um, it's got a rose window with this tiny, tiny little Jesus of Nazareth, who turns out is like f- actually five and a half feet tall. I mean, it's just it's a, it's a gargantuan space. The sound is majestic. I mean, you can hear from that Paul Winter uh, piece you opened with. This. It sounds like nothing else in there. Um, everything is kind of hushed and cold and everything smells like incense. Um, and um, yeah, the the 
the distinction that I sometimes talk about is that, you know, you go to Uluru and you see these mainly white tourists who are being told, you know, please don't climb this structure and then trying to figure out ways to climb it anyway, or trying to figure out ways to like take little bits of it or etch their names in it or something like that. And you go to a place like St. John the Divine um, and tourists come in by the boatload, by the busload, by the bucket load. Um, and the minute they get in, no matter where they're from, their voices get very hushed and they become very well behaved and they stay with <laughs> in the little velvet ropes. Um, there is something about um, human-made structures, artificially made structures, uh, that I think uh, Western uh, educated folks um, tend to respect more instantaneously um, than formations that perhaps humans have tried not to alter, in fact. So um, I will say that the Cathedral of St. John the Divine, in some ways, I mean, it certainly is all the things that you just said, but it also it makes an effort somehow or other also to be of human scale. There's like small things, little alcoves that you can go in and out of and stuff like that. And there's also that way, I mean, the Paul Winter thing is obviously a very, very ecumenical, syncretistic kind of experience. It's, you know, as as pagan as it gets in some ways and, and as, you know, multinational as it can possibly be. And it seems right at home there at the Cathedral of St. John the Divine. But I also wanted to ask you a little bit about, I don't know, what I consider to be somewhat more liminal spaces, which I I am very attracted to. I liked being in Japan where the Shinto shrines come kind of right out onto the street or, I mean, you you can just sort of shamble over to them. And then there's this you know, ritual of clapping uh, and and bowing. And I maybe I'm a horrible Western tourist. I don't know. But I did it pr- with some seriousness. Uh, but I liked the idea. It wasn't – you didn't really go inside. You, know? <laughs> you didn't climb up on anything. I like that idea of it being in a kind of liminal you know, threshold kind of space. Yeah, that sounds right. I, I mean, it, it, but and but also even with those threshold spaces, um, there is local knowledge about how both um, you know indigenous or local folks should behave and how visitors should behave. Mm-hmm. And usually, the the stewards of those shrines um, set the rules of engagement and tell you, look, this is an important. You can't just wander in here and behave the way that you would in a local grocery store. There are way that this is how you bow. This is how you clap. You're going to look ridiculous. You're going to look like a white person bowing and clapping. But like, do it anyway. <laughs> Um, because this is these are the prescriptions for interacting with the sacred space. Gaijin is the term you're actually looking for there. Um, <laughs> so, um, I, you know, another thing you brought up with Lily, and I'm fascinated by this, is the idea of people being sacred. Uh, I mean, there's some obvious in, uh, examples, the Pope, the Dalai Lama. I mean, say a little bit about how you think about that. Right. So the way that, um, you know, anthropologists and scholars of religion talk about it is that um, people, I mean, even ordinary people, even go through um, these these rites of passage, which bring them through what you what you were just calling as a sort of liminal time and a liminal space um, that take them from one state of being to another. Um, so Jewish babies um, during the, the ritual of the bris or the circumcision are, um, are brought from one state of being to another. Um, bar and bat mitzvahs are brought from the state of child to the state of adolescence. Um, people who are getting married are brought from a state of singlehood to a state of marriage. These are all sacred ceremonies um, that confer a kind of sacred status upon, again, even the most ordinary of people, right? Um, but there are also collective rituals um, that mark some of us as like more important than others. The the coronation, for example, um, takes somebody who, who already had a kind of um, 
you know, a, a, a sort of lesser sacred status and imbues him with more of a sacred status. Um, presidential inaugurations take an order, ordinary citizen and make that citizen into the president of the United States. Um, they have to be enacted in particular ways. There have to be particular people reading from particular texts at a particular time in a particular place that take an ordinary person and make that person, um, imbue that person with a kind of sacred status. And then, of course, once you run into that person on the street, because that person is sacred, you don't get to just interact with that person in a normal, ordinary way, right? You have to you have to behave according to particular protocols um, that uh, uh, that are implicit in that particular station. But I'm also very intrigued, once again, with, <laughs> with liminality here, or with the sort of blurring of distinctions a little bit. And I'm going to give you this example that is. I have to give some credit to my ex-wife who first began to talk about this because some of her family members were older Southern women. They were really Southern ladies. You really almost have to say this. And and they were very devout. They were very religious. And they um, they would often talk about Jesus as a sacred persona, but also – well, actually, there's, there's. I want you just to everybody to listen to the lyrics to this song because it's almost as if they're describing, and the person who's singing the song, by the way, is going to become important in just a second. Almost describe, it's describing a romantic encounter with almost a secret lover. So, Kat, this is a one. I come to the garden. Walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own. There's a way in which Jesus is transformed into an almost romantic or erotic figure. Of course, the person singing is Elvis, who has been transformed over time from a romantic or erotic figure into a sacred figure. There's, there are black velvet paintings of the two of them together. But there's that way. Maybe we could just talk a little bit about a secular figure like Elvis, the way he, at a certain point, maybe gets transformed into something very nearly sacred. Sure. I mean, I'm happy to talk about Jesus. No, Jesus. Talk, well, I'll <laughs> Jesus. talk about both of them. Say anything you want. Yeah, I mean, Jesus. Jesus is a complicated figure. This is this is um, the scandal of the incarnation of Christianity's central doctrine, which is that the you know untouchable, ineffable, immortal, unchanging, eternal, singular, totally disembodied God um, took on human form in a place in time in a human body that was probably about five foot four inches tall and occupied Palestine. I mean, the the, the conflict between those two different sets of categories 
stories, um, is enough to make the mind real. And it's that that St. Paul says is uh, the reason that this can only be a matter of faith, because it, it, you know, it seems so philosophically impossible that, you know, this same person can be both, you know, sacred in a totally removed way and also your best friend or your lover or something like that. Um, that's the, the the sort of Christian stroke of genius is to combine those opposite categories and to draw the sacred so near that it's sort of equally terrifying as if it were totally far away. Um, Elvis celebrities, right. I mean, this, like, similarly, the, you know, the, the, it's the energy of a, of a community um, of a po- in this sense, you know, popular culture um, that coalesces around particular figures and makes them sacred. There's nothing about Elvis that you know was sacred at the time of his birth or something like that. It's um and and it's not necess- it's not the songs themselves. Um, it's the collective energy around the songs and the presence and the pants and the gyrating and all of that, <laughs> right? That establishes El- Elvis as a sacred being. People can also come out of being sacred beings, right? I when I grew up in my family, Bill Cosby was a sacred being. Um, he has lost that status because of the way that um you know collective energy has come to turn away from him. Um, so, you know, people can come in and out of sacredness. All right. You know, he's lost it like on a John Milton basis. Um, all right. So I don't know. Lily says we have to wrap up pretty soon. Can we just do a little bit of outer space? You might have to, now that you pass the Elvis Jesus test, you can be on whenever you want. But, um, <laughs> and maybe we just have to do the outer space thing as a whole show. But just in, just give me just a nutshell of what it is you're thinking about. I mean, I, I watched uh, one of the videos um but uh, but just talk a little bit about why outer space and sacredness are interesting to you right now. Okay, two reasons. Um, first of all, uh, the U.S. space program um, has always uh, justified itself rhetorically um, by connecting the conquest of space to the conquest of uh, North America, that just as God uh, wanted, called uh, European-descended Americans to conquer the whole North American continent, God is now calling Americans to conquer outer space. So there's this um, you know, very straightforward um, sort of post-Christian inheritance that the space program has always kind of called upon, particularly through the voice of politicians. Um, I'm also looking at the way that um, some private, uh, some spokespeople of private capital, particularly Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, um, are uh, sort of selling futures in outer space based on a very classic religious narrative of um, impending disaster on the one hand and promised salvation on the other hand. I mean, there's also that, you know, the so-called overview effect in that, you know, the astronauts uh, often describe um, Edgar Mitchell, you know, became, he founded the Institute for Noetic Science or whatever. But I mean, there's that, that's, that sense. It's clearly an epiphany. And I think some of the astronauts are reluctant to call it that because they exist in this kind of scientific continuum where it's just maybe not so cool. But to me, that's one of the other interesting things is, wow, you get away from Earth, you look at it differently. One of your panelists was saying, you know, there's an outer space. There isn't really like the Sabbath doesn't come on a certain day. You know, all this calendar stuff doesn't really work out there. But but other things start to kick in instead. Yeah, the hope is that somehow by seeing the Earth from a position beyond the Earth, um, the astronaut comes to realize that all of us are really, you know, the same species on the same planet in the same biosphere. And really, we should end our wars and get about the business of being decent stewards of the Earth and one another. Um, That would be a a great way to relate to outer space, but I'm, I'm not sure that's the direction we're headed. 
All right. So I think we have to go, or we're getting in a lot of trouble with Lily Tyson, but uh, <laughs> you are welcome back here whenever. You're wonderful. Uh, and um, so Mary Jane Rubenstein, a professor of religion and science and society at Wesleyan University, the author of Astrotopia, The Dangerous Religion of Corporate Space Race, among other books. Thanks for doing this. And when we come back, we'll talk about a more secular view of the sacred, if that's not a contradiction in terms. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. God is in the child's eyes. See them wide, wondrous wise. God is in the rain and snow. And each snowflake, this we know. God is in the trees and air, the rocks, the birds, the bees, the bears. And God is in the clouds above. God is in each act of love. God is in the oceans deep. Some say God goes there to sleep. God is in the mountains high, whistling a lullaby. God is in the darkest wood. God is in your neighborhood. God is in a place that's near, sometimes it's just not so clear. God is in, God is in, God is in. All right, well, this part of the conversation, actually, will probably deal quite a bit less with God, um, but uh, not quite a bit less with the idea of the sacred. Uh, Vanessa Zoltan uh, is an atheist chaplain, co-host of the podcast Harry Potter and the Sacred Text, Hot and Bothered and Should I Quit, and the author of Praying with Jane Eyre, Reflections on Reading as a Sacred Practice. Welcome to our conversation. Thank you so much for having me. So I think some people are going to hear atheist chaplain and think atheist chaplain seems also like maybe a contradiction in terms. Uh, How does it work being an atheist chaplain? Yeah, I think that people who do not believe in God still need a loving, benevolent ear at times. And so I did my initial training in um, a prison setting and in a hospital setting. And those are two settings where, you know, it really doesn't matter what religion you are. You still might need someone with compassion, who is coming into the space with no intention other than to be loving and show some kindness towards you. And I think that that is a position that anyone can play with or without God. So talk about your idea of the sacred. You think of it more as a way in which almost we engage with reality, certain parts of reality. It's we can we can in our use of something, in our actions towards something, make it sacred to us anyway. 
Yeah. So I talk about sacred as an act rather than a thing, which I don't think contradicts, you know, anything that MJ was saying earlier, but I would just include things that we treat as sacred without them being called sacred by any sort of authority. And so, you know, my work with Harry Potter was really drawn not by my love for Harry Potter, which is, we all know, a problematic text written by an incredibly problematic person. But it is where a lot of people show devotional practice. And by that, you know, you can sort of outline it by thinking about faith, rigor, and community as the three sort of most essential components of treating something as sacred. Faith that the more time you spend with it, the more gifts it will give you. The more often you read Harry Potter on the anniversary of one of your parents' death, the more comfortable you get with the text, the more comforting you will find the text because you will know what to expect and you'll notice something different and beautiful and see something different in it. The rigor or ritual is that, you know, the more you put into it, the more you get out of it. If you read attentively, if you pay attention with, with, um, with intention, it will give you more. And then with community, we all know this, that, you know, you're more likely to go to the gym with a gym buddy and you're more likely to be rigorous in how you are thinking about a text if you are with someone. And so if you can read with a buddy, with a book club, you're going to be more likely to get out of it. And these are the three components that, you know, we use in traditional religion as well. I just think that they're highly transferable to secular things. Yeah, I mean, I'm reminded of, I actually reordered a copy of a book I used to own called Chop Wood, Carry Water, A Guide to Finding mm. Spiritual Fulfillment in Everyday Life. But that whole, the title is that Chop Wood, Carry Water idea of being fully present, fully mindful in what you're doing, even if it's a fairly repetitive task. It also yeah. reminded me of Thoreau. Thoreau writes, I find that I conciliate the gods by some sacrament as bathing or abstemiousness in diet or rising early. These are my sacraments. Uh, yeah. So I don't know. You Re react to that a little bit. It seems very very similar to a lot of what you're saying. Yeah, I love that. I uh, Thoreau is an interesting case because he did so much of it alone, <laughs> um, which is its own topic. But you know, there's a philosopher who I really love by the name Simone Weil, and she would talk about. She has this fantastic essay called "On the Right Use of School Studies," and she says says that the point of school is not only to learn the subject, not only to learn Greek is the example that she gives, but it's to learn how to pay attention because attention is love and love is prayer. And that by paying attention to something really difficult, like learning Greek, a new alphabet, something ancient, something hard, we are training ourselves to look at one another with a keen attention and look hard and read toward love. And I think that it's exactly like what you're saying with Thoreau and chopping wood, right? That there is, um, that there's, we can treat things that are banal as sacred. That being said, what, what I love about treating secular things as sacred is that there's more of an opting in. I think what's so beautiful about Thoreau's list is that in part, some of them are things that he has to do to take care of themselves, but other things are practices that he has chosen, like waking up early. Whereas I am very skeptical when someone says, you know, clean the church from top to bottom. Oh, by the way, what you're doing is sacred. Um, <laughs> if it is serving someone else or if it is to get into the afterlife, I become much more squeamish about the assignment. Yeah, I think 
saying it's sacred, calling attention to it is for the most part not the point and maybe not a great idea. I mean, the Japanese tea, series, tea ceremonies are, you know, a very, very carefully done, intentional kind of thing. I don't know that they necessarily, you know, invoke the idea that they're sacred. They don't have to. It's just so clearly the kind of thing that you're talking about. And, and I love the way that you find this idea in a lot of unlikely places. So I think we should talk about baseball. And, and yeah. but before we talk about baseball, let me just tell you one thing about my life. I grew Please. up – I was raised partly by um, a grandmother, a working class New England woman who in her apartment had the way someone might have a, a figure uh, of Ganesha or a statue of St. Francis. She had a statue of Ted Williams. Uh, that exactly sense. that with the same way the great uh, Red Sox slugger because uh, that that's who she kind of prayed to I think but so talk about your how you see baseball yeah I have a younger brother who um, had a lot of learning difficulties growing up but he's an exceptional baseball player and an even more exceptional baseball fan he is now a PE coach and coaches baseball. And the way that he loves baseball is absolutely devotional. He pays very close attention. He believes that there is a better season to come. We are Angels fans. So he is an incredibly hopeful person. He has sayings that work in baseball that he uses for every part of his life. He will say lots of baseball left at the beginning of the season when it's already clear to most of the world that the Angels are not going to be back in the World Series like they were over 20 years ago. And he'll say that to one of my kids if they're frustrated with something. That's fine. There's lots of baseball left. You have lots of time. You can be patient. He looks as at baseball as a metaphor for how to see the world and it helps him make order of the world. It helps him love the world. Um, and you know, the film Bull Durham gave us all the, the expression, the church of baseball. And I, I think it is just as good of a church as any other. Right. Well, that's also the, that speech Crash Davis gives at the end about what he believes in, which, yeah. you know, that nothing – that was like the Nicene Creed but, but expressed <laughs> uh, by a, a catcher. Uh, and yeah, yeah I mean, I, 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 that's a great citation. Although, let's link two things that you've talked about and I'll, I want to get your reaction. Because if we go back to what MJ was saying at the very beginning, you know, there is some sense in the idea of the sacred – particularly in the more conventional idea of the sacred, of it being inviolable, right? Mm-hmm. We, don't, we don't want it messed up or messed with. On Twitter, J.K. Rowling was jumping in on some conversation about trans persons. Mm-hmm. And this woman, it broke my heart. This woman said she commented on a Twitter thread. She said, you know, I, my nine-year-old is, is a trans person is, you know, and, and, but loves your work and it just breaks their heart every single time you say something like this. And similarly, I would take a wild guess that your brother isn't really crazy about rules changes where, you know, the runner starts on second and extra innings <laughs> and stuff like that. Because I know other people, there's actually a producer on this show who's like that. <laughs> and and that's, that's violating what should be inviolable to some people. Yeah, I think, hmm, I think very few things are actually inviolable, right? And that is something that human cruelty has taught us. Mm -hmm. And so I think that sacredness is something that we should hold lightly, at least something that we treat as sacred. I don't think that we should treat what other people consider sacred lightly. I don't think we should be climbing on things that are sacred rocks and mountains to others. But, um, 
part of treating something as sacred is treating it critically. And I think it is really important to not read the Bible on its face. I don't think we should be sacrificing virgins. I do not think we should be stoning adulterers. And I don't think that we should be treating Harry Potter as sacred in its purest form. I think once an author writes a book, she, they hand it to the readers and it becomes the readers. And I think a lot of really important work is actually happening in fan fiction in the Harry Potter world, but also just in conversation in noticing, wow, this is really fat phobic. This is really gender essentialist. This is disappointing in all sorts of ways. And I think that it's incredibly disappointing the way that JK Rowling is harming the people who love her book the most. I also think that she has not read her own books recently because her books are all about how misunderstanding someone for being a giant or any number of other things is, you know, is the wrong way to live. Um, And so I think people are reading Rowling against Rowling, but I think there simultaneously has to be this holding light and criticism, um, which is a paradox to some extent, but you know, having high standards and yet saying, okay, we can't take this totally seriously because a human created it, even a brilliant group of humans created it, and therefore it is not infallible. So um, I, one of the people that I like to read on, on this topic is uh, Thomas More, not the old, old, old Thomas More, the more recent Thomas mm-hmm. More. Uh, and he writes, Confuse the sacred and the secular in your environment. Create a a liminal, neither here nor there, milieu. It is always at the liminal spaces that significant things happen. So work at creating liminality. Shock yourself and others by refusing to separate the holy and the profane. See the danger in such a separation and avoid it in every instance. This could be a rule in your own religion. Um, And I mean, I see that Somewhat in your work too, you're not dealing with sacred maybe quite as as you know uh, religiously as he does. But that idea of commingling things that there's stuff around you, some of which you really kind of identified as having that kind of secular sacred relationship, creating a world around yourself that has some of that. But I'd love to hear you more say say more about it. Yeah, um, I love that quote and had not heard it. Um, I think. What do we think about this? I think, first of all, that, you know, if an object is profane, if you treat it as profane, right, you can have, you know, the most beautiful ancient Haggadah in the world. And if you use it as a doorstopper because you don't know what it is, then it is functionally a doorstopper. And, you know, it is once you pick up the book and open it that it has the power to transform you. Um, I am a Jewish atheist and I you know, my Seder table, I have two stepdaughters who are of no faith. They are not raised in any religion. So I'm the person who brings the most um, religious ritual into their lives. And at our Seder every year, when I hide the afikoman, the piece of matzah that kids have to hunt to in order to finish the um, the Seder, I have everybody play Uno because we have a small apartment and I don't want them to see where I'm hiding it and Uno distracts them. And so Uno, not a sacred game, but part of our sacred dinner. But then there's a part in this, you know, Seder dinner where the children are supposed to go to the door and open the door for Elijah and shout, all are welcome here. And my kids did it this year for the first time, screaming, 
all are welcome here. They used to be much shyer about it. And like, I've never been prouder of any ritual in my life than having, you know, two kids scream into the neighborhood, all are welcome here and leaving our front door open. And I think that Uno and saying everyone are welcome here, I absolutely belong side by side. So uh, maybe I have time for one more question here. And one of the things that I am intrigued by is are spaces that can be used multiple ways or experiences that can be used multiple ways. I think there are these kind of bleeding edge places. I think yoga is one of them. Yoga can be a form of exercise. It also can be and originally was a much more sacred kind of experience and still is for some of the people who do it. I think recovery is a little bit like that. You know, I mean, there's certainly an awful lot of sacredness uh, in the vision behind recovery, but some people prefer to experience it in, in a kind of secular way. Um, th- that intrigues me, you know, that idea mm-hmm. that that we could be doing these things, uh, you know, a little bit differently, but in the same space. Yeah. I, you know, I think every meal is like that, right? Mm-hmm. Like there are a lot of churches that do dinner, dinner church, And right, it's just us being together that is a form of communion. And if you look up at your dinner table and think, oh my gosh, it's a miracle. We're not here in this, on this block in the middle of a war and the electricity is working and there's enough food to be on our plates. And look, there's even salt in the middle of the table. So I can salt this to the exact amount that I want. That is a, that is a miracle and a moment in time. And if you're lucky enough to look up and see people who you love near you on, in that space, that is another miracle. And I think that, you know, we use our dinner tables as places to do homework, as places to gather keys and detritus from our lives. But they are also places where we do Seder and Christmas dinner. And I think that the more that we can look at our dinner table as a place where sacred things happen, you know, the more beautiful homework will become as well. This is a magical place where the whole world, our whole lives center, and it's just a couple pieces of wood. That is beautifully, beautifully expressed. Vanessa Zoltan, uh, atheist chaplain, co-host of the podcast, Harry Potter and the Sacred Test, hot and bothered, should I quit, author of Praying with Jane Eyre, Reflections on Reading as a Sacred Practice. We will take a little break, and we're gonna, as we take a break, we're gonna, you're going to introduce you to our next guest by playing some of his music out of this segment. the Colin McEnroe Show on Facebook or Twitter at Colin McShow. Make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing to or following our podcast on any podcast app. It's free. You don't have to wait an hour after eating before you go swimming. That's just something our mothers believe. Back to the show.
All right. Thanks to Cat Pastor, our technical producer. Lily Tyson, our senior producer, is the producer of this episode. Thanks to Dylan for the music. Uh, and now we're about to do something that we should do a whole show about, and we're going to do it in 10 minutes, which is not a good idea. But Mark Miller is a lecturer in sacred music at Yale's Institute of Sacred Music and Divinity School. He's also the professor of church music, director of chapel, and composer in residence at Drew University, and the minister of, uh, minister of music of Christ Church. So first of all, Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here, Colin. So one thing I was thinking about, uh, just reading the, some of the notes of things that you talked to Lily about, is, you know, in 1971, I was a high school student. And there was this guy, Cat Stevens, and he, I should have had her pull the clip, but, you know, he had a song, I listen to the wind, to the wind of my soul, where I'll end up, well, I think only God really knows. And he goes on from there. And to me, to all of us, it was just kind of this cool, poppy kind of song by this, you know, folky kind of guy. When he became Yusuf Islam, uh, the song really takes on a different meaning now, right? It is really clearly a piece of sacred music in its own way. Indeed, yeah. And you could argue that it was sacred then, but you just heard it differently because you thought of him differently and he might have thought himself differently. But yeah, um, kind of similar to the doorstop uh, metaphor that um, Vanessa brought up earlier, you know, what what makes music sacred? That's Interesting question. Well, let's talk a little bit more about it then. Yeah. Well, you know, first of all, uh, I was kind of amazed and blown away by Mary Jane and Vanessa's conversation with you. I really resonated with so much, uh, so to speak, of what you spoke about. Um, it, it, it fascinated me to think about sacred places like St. John's or the, the big rock Uluru in uh, Australia and how they are Set in, set in stone, really, like they're places that you can go see, but they're always there. But that the sounds we create are very ephemeral, ephemeral and finite. Um, they're there. I feel like we grab them out of the universe. They're there. We sing them. We play them. And then they're gone. It's like a, it's like the preciousness of that time that we have. Um, but for me, music uh kind of like your other guests were saying i mean we imbue it with sacredness i'm i i'm a believer that if it is if it sounds good it is good and that um that music's sacredness comes from the context in which we in which we play it and sing it well you're quoting ellington there i think and it's interesting that he like so many other jazz musicians wound up uh, doing you know he did the concert of sacred music um he did three different versions of it uh, he called it the most important thing i've ever done and i think in particular a lot of the jazz writers and players because jazz is a is a kind of music that's never quite completed right it's going to be done one more time a different way and there's this constant questioning that goes on all the time and it's not surprising to me that you can almost set your watch for okay so and so is going to come out with his sacred music album or his mass or his you know or his just clearly spiritually or her spiritually influenced set of songs there's a way in which i think you know music because of what it is it starts to invite a certain kind of thinking, even if you didn't start out with sacred intentions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I definitely believe that. Um, it's kind of funny over the years as a composer of sacred music, so many people have asked me, you know, why don't you compose, uh, you know, your music sounds like it could be on Broadway. Why don't you do you, you compose pop songs? And I think uh, actually that's what I've been doing all along. I mean, it just happens to be done in churches or faith communities or sometimes high schools or colleges, but I, I, I don't 
I don't see the separation necessarily. Um, but it's funny how I, I know certainly different cultures. Um, I, I think of many musicians that I love kind of move from like church to uh, where they can be considered pop. Like, I don't know, Whitney Houston, let's say, you know, she grew up in the church and her music becomes uh, music for all people or people have gotten, uh, you know, penalized for having gone from church music, Amy Grant, to more popular music in the 80s. And all of a sudden, uh, you know, she's kind of banned from uh, the music that she made earlier and CC, you know, contemporary Christian music. I just, I don't see those, um, those walls. And I try to work at creating music that, that uh, challenges those assumptions and can be played in many different places. Yeah. I mean, I think of people like Sting and Bono. Bono's latest book is full of spirituality and, and religious reflection. Um, and certainly a song like Grace is just, you know, powerfully, obviously religious. I think there's plenty of – there should be a lot of fluidity. You should be able to slosh all around in there. But there's also yeah. the way in which music really needs to integrate into a service. A service has to have a certain kind of music. I mean, maybe you would dispute that. I, what I, I'm always dying – on Wednesday night, Yale has this uh, has a Taizé uh, service, and you know it's based on this French monastery. And, um, and my understanding of that is that the music is really kind of specifically important in those services. And I think there are a lot of ways in which sacred sacred experiences, sacred rit- rituals need the right kind of sacred music. But I'd love to hear you on that. Yeah, great question. And uh, certainly as an organist, I, you know, that's what I studied uh, at Yale as an undergrad, organ performance. And if you want to hear an organ, you go, you go to a church or if <laughs> I want to practice, that's where I'm, that's where I'm at. So, you know, for me, uh, as a, you know, growing up, growing up in a Christian tradition, organ has always signaled to me the sacred. Um, and uh, I, I, <laughs> I also want to, uh, you know, singing of voices for people like voices singing together, uh, certain hymns uh, and songs signal the sacred. But I recently have realized that, you know, there's there's other questions I ask, like, is it sacred? For instance, I ask my students, I say, you know, the song Amazing Grace, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that would be considered sacred in almost everyone's uh, Christian background. However, that song was traditionally sung at clan meetings at the end where they're burning a cross. (laughs) Is that song continue to be sacred? (laughs) You know, I, I would question that. And so I'm thinking these days more of the ethics of of who is in the room and what are your intentions when you're singing it, you know, that or when you're playing the music that that for me uh, becomes a really important question. I, I think it is a really important question. Uh, and we could run, uh, rub our thumb down that knife's edge quite a bit, I think. Uh, I'm kind of running out of time here. I, the one thing that I do want to say uh, about what you just said about the organ is that it's absolutely true. But, you know, Possibly the greatest movie ever made was the commitments, and there's a great scene where they're up in the organ loft and they're <laughs> they're trying out the organ and they're playing a whiter shade of pale, uh, and the Catholic priest, unbeknownst to them, walks in below and looks up and goes, "Yeah, the sixteen vestal virgins." I always did wonder what that one was about, um, but there is it is true we, that song play because it's an organ song. It, it does there's some invitation I think to to experience it that way. I just had to get that off my chest, but well let's let's do a, like a whole show about this. 
we can't do this in the, a few minutes. Mark Miller is a lecturer of sacred music at Yale's Institute of Sacred Music and Divinity School, also professor of church music, director of chapel and composer in residence at Drew University. We will say goodbye today. Thank you very much to everyone who was on the show, to people who listened to the show, to Kat, and especially to Lily Tyson, who conceived of this show and put it all together. Here's a little bit more uh, of Mark Miller. Draw the circle, draw the circle wide. Draw the circle wide, draw it wider still. Let this be our song. No one stands alone, standing side by side. Draw the circle, draw the circle wide. Draw the circle, draw the circle.